Hello and welcome to another episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. My guest on this episode is Jennifer McGill. An early starter to the world of showbiz, Jennifer spent seven seasons as a cast member of Disney's all-new Mickey Mouse Club before moving into a career in music. She stopped by to discuss her career journey so far, along with the worst gift she's ever been given. So Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It's great to have you here. Absolutely. I, I love being here with you. Thank you so much. Not a problem. I'm looking forward to finding out all about your career. And I wanted to go right back to the beginning. And what was your start in the entertainment industry like? I know that you appeared in, in a number of pageants as a child. Yes, it's so crazy, the cliche of pageants. I, I actually view my time with pageants from seven years old to 10 years old as my sport. That was my soccer, my football um, I really just took the stage to win the trophy and then I just wanted to go home and play. <laughs> so it was definitely not the more kind of conceited cutthroat, you know, uh, mommy pushing you into this kind of uh, thing that we usually hear about uh, that kind of life. But I was drawn to the crown. That was really what I wanted. I wanted to have a bunch of crowns to play with at home. And the way that I got there was to sing as loud and as high as I could and win the talent portion of the pageant. And I was horrible at all the modeling, so that was never anything that I was super interested in. But my last pageant, when I was 10, um, I got the attention of a children's agent in Texas, and on a handshake, she represented me, and one of the first auditions she got for me was, it turned out to be, my first professional job uh, as a Mouseketeer. As a mouse here on, on the Mickey Mouse Club. So what, yes. was, what was the audition process like for Disney to get onto the show? Well, I remember there was a, a, big, a big cattle call, right? There were thousands of American and Canadian children who were showing up to a bunch of these events. But what was really exciting for me was I had an appointment. So it was really me one-on-one -on -one with the casting director who actually cast all seven seasons of the new Mickey Mouse Club. And so I was originally auditioning for the movie that was going to be called Why? Because We Like You. It was going to be about the original Mouseketeers from the 50s. And I did get cast in that movie, and we were starting uh, the documents, all the signing of the legal stuff, when the writer's strike of, I believe, 1988 happened. And that movie got canceled. So my audition uh, tape from that first one-on-one -on -one with Matt Casella got forwarded to the final auditions for the TV show, the all-new Mickey Mouse Club for the Disney Channel. Ah. So I attended the first and then final audition <laughs> for that process. Um, I was in Orlando, Florida. We auditioned at the Grand Floridian in a ballroom. And there were probably about 20 kids with all of their parents and brothers and sisters and then the staff auditioning who were working through that ballroom. And it was really exciting to meet kids that were like me, who, who beyond just talent competitions, a lot of them had been in commercials or Broadway. I definitely felt, um, I, I felt worried, am I going to be enough, right, <laughs> to compete? I was very intimidated with all of these exceptionally talented kids, and it worked out great. I was just what they needed as far as a little bit more of that fresh, fresh off the small town vibe, you know, with all the big notes. So it worked out great. I imagine with it being sort of your first TV job, the production schedule must have been pretty hectic and something you weren't necessarily used to beforehand. Absolutely. It was incredibly hectic. When I, when I unpack all the details, it does seem very overwhelming. I will tell you 
the summary is I loved it. I was, I thrived in order and organization and itineraries and script changes and color coding. I was all about it. Who would have known at 10 years old that I was an organized creative, but I was. <laughs> and so it, that's how it went. We, we did it sort of like uh, kind of a nine to five job when we were in a, in a taping season and each taping season for each year was a little different, but towards the beginning, it was the most hectic. Um, in the very beginning, most of the Mouseketeers would move um, to Orlando, like to an apartment complex where a, a guardian and the child were living together, but everyone was in pretty close quarters and we would get moved uh, to Disney MGM Studios for the workday. And our workday was approximately nine to five. It could have been 9.30 to 5.30 or maybe even nine to six. But the idea was we had school for three hours because that was mandated by law that we studied. We did our work and our curriculum, no matter what time of year it was, that we had school that we did for three hours. And then the rest of our day was the itinerary. Uh, we just showed up wherever the location said. So it was the dance trailer, the vocal trailer, the drama room, the script readings, the wardrobe hair and makeup testing, and then getting into actual wardrobe hair and makeup. We did a video shoot. We would record the vocals in our post-production area that was a part of a live tour. There were patrons of Disney and Jim Studios who would walk by the glass wall and watch us sing sing at full voice, right? But they just couldn't hear us, right? So we're just making all these crazy faces <laughs> trying to record this music and they're taking pictures, you know, and we're just waving. So my whole childhood development through senior year in high school, I was sort of living in a fishbowl <laughs> where I had to show up where I needed to show up, but I also was being looked on as, as a tourist item. It was very surreal. Absolutely. So, I mean, how many episodes were you, were you shooting at one time? Were you working on, say, an episode a week or, or was it more hectic than that? It was more hectic than that for most of the seasons. I think everyone except for season seven, it was a, it was a five day a week show. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was five days a week. We had Monday music day, Tuesday guest day, Wednesday anything can happen day, Thursday was party day, Friday was Hall of Fame day. So we had a theme, uh, very, it was basically templated like the original 50s Mouseketeers uh, would run their shows as far as the themes, but we did it five days a week. Therefore, we were rehearsing potentially for five different shows of content. And the show ran, you know, like 20 something minutes each episode. Uh, when you think about commercials, it was a half hour show, uh -huh. but we packed in a lot of 30 second, 15 second, minute and a half, five minutes, skits, you know, voiceovers, spoof commercials, comedic intros and outros, games with our audience, you know, interviews with guests. So we packed a lot. We it's a lot, lot to remember. To it's a lot to remember though, for someone so young. That's right. That's right. We had no cue cards. So everything that we did, this is my favorite story as far as that. Our scripts, we had a binder that would include, let's say one week at a time, but each one of those would be labeled. This is this episode, then the next episode, then the next. And you'd start out with, let's say pages one through whatever it was, 50 something, a hundred something. And then every time you'd go to that script reading, they'd give you new pages. You would most likely pick up new pages that were different colors. And then it became 32A, 32B, 32B oh, wow. through <laughs> F, 32, one through nine, right? All of a sudden, they're making so many rewrites and changes as we're learning all of this stuff. You, even when you film it on the floor of the set, you still are getting directions and sometimes uh, script changes that wow. you must memorize right on right off the cuff and then spit it back out. 
And you're talking about children who are at the youngest when we went into production, probably 11. And the oldest of us in the beginning was maybe 15, maybe 14. Um, and by the time the show ended, you know, we were past college age, some of us, not me, but I was, I was about ready to go to college when we ended the show. And so all through that time, we're being trained to regurgitate very quickly and sell it with no cue cards. So it was a huge benefit to me in my career long-term as far as the training that I got and how excellent I was based on what was asked of me during that time on the Disney Channel. You were one of the very few Mouseketeers that starred in every single series of the new Mickey Mouse Club. So I wonder what your memorable moments were from your time with the show, seeing as you were there so long. Yes, I, I do marvel at the pilot because there are only three of us who came into the pilot filming and lasted all, all seven seasons, uh, appearing in every, in every season. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was, I, was the middle, I was the middle child. There was Lindsay, who's the youngest, then me, then Josh. And I would say that because I had not come from anything professional before, I really took on that show almost like it was just some really fun party, something that I got to do that I loved, that I was training to get better at because I wanted to get better at it. I wanted to uh, not be intimidated by the other kids. So I really wanted to do my job well. Of course, I wanted to please all of the adults, you know, make sure that everyone was happy. Uh -huh. um, and so, I mean, that, that was a lot of the motivation for me to be excellent and to really, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, slay everything that I, <laughs> I came across, you know, on my plate. Um, cause I really loved to do that. I really loved to impress, you know, it was something, yes, that I brought from my pageant days, something I wanted that audience to react to me. I wanted, I wanted to be special, you know, so that did motivate me, but what I loved as far as the show itself, my favorite process was to learn a song, to go into the studio and to record it, then to go shoot the music video and see it all come together when we see that final product of that, of that movie, basically like the production of that music video, that was my most exciting process because I just, I love production. I love so many elements of what it takes to make something truly wonderful and quote unquote, sound expensive, look expensive. You know, I loved, I love that, that element of that standard that Disney had for their work. And so I just ate that up, how everything uh, processed that way. And uh, I think my other favorite thing was just being funny in the comedic skits. I really enjoyed learning about comedic timing and what it took to be a character actor. So I, I really did love that too. You saw a lot of other Mouseketeers come and go. I wonder, if, did you feel any pressure? Seeing, as you saw a lot of people sort of come in and then out again, but you were still there. You, was there any pressure on you to sort of keep the level of standard up throughout the performances? Well... The short answer is no. I rem There's a lot of stuff that I remember being insecure about, but my status on the show was not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was told a lot of the times how well I was doing, and there's an element of my aesthetic back then. There was a youthful element of how, how I was made, just what I looked like, that I knew was what they wanted. And so I was, uh, the, the, the girls that would leave before the final season, usually the story we were given was that they just grew up too fast. You know, they were just uh, okay. becoming very mature. And uh, that was something that might not be relatable to uh, the age range or, you know, maybe 
maybe might be too sexy. And so for better or for worse, I was left out of that category. So I got to stay because I was kid-like enough, I guess, to, to keep it running. Plus I was an original. And so um, there was an element of, I would say, being a veteran to that, you know, kind of a, a testimony to how we started. And keeping the three of us on the whole time was, was very helpful with that to keep to keep our original fans connected to the first generation of, of the nineties Mouseketeers. So yeah, no, I, I, I was, I was good with my job. I knew I was a queen there and it was, it was very cool to feel that way with, with the, you know, with the, with the staff. <laughs> now towards the end of the run, you were joined by some new co-stars that went on to become pretty well known. I mean, we won't name them all, but you know, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, to name a few. And yes, when they came in as kids, did they show that, that talent early on and the potential that they go on to be the people that they went on to be? Yes, absolutely. I, this was before, of course, before bubblegum pop exploded in the 90s. Uh, I mean, in, in the 2000s. Uh, in the 2000s, when bubblegum pop exploded and Britney really came on the scene strong and then Christina followed and you've got the boy bands and all of that. At the time that we were doing the Mickey Mouse Club, we didn't see that kind of potential. Uh-huh. But we saw great, great potential. Christina Aguilera always had a level of depth and maturity and flexibility in her vocals that absolutely made, made my eyebrows raise. Like, who is this girl? Like, so much going on in there that was really, really unique and special. And what's so ironic about Britney, I say this every time I talk about her, that she really was the most professional out of all of those kids coming in. She was such a normal average girl next door off the set but as soon as she stepped on stage and she knew it was time to work she was the most precise and professional girl I had ever met working working the stage and so I was thoroughly impressed by this new group um Justin and I were like little little kid friends for a while we you know we're I'm probably about he's about the age of my brother so um I'm about four years older than him give or take half a year but she, but the, the idea with me and Justin, I, I knew that he was talented, but I just really loved him as a little guy. You know, we just really enjoyed spending time together at school. And I, I as he grew up between season six and, and season seven, I actually saw him really start to become who he was going to be. I saw more of that humor, more of him taking his own risk and identity in, in certain songs he would sing because all of these kids looked up to us before they got on the show. Sure. And Justin really, Justin really did look up to the, to the bigger guys on the show. So his first year was sort of like clocking everyone and kind of seeing what works and what was cool. And then the second year, uh, which was our last season together for the show at all, uh, he really blossomed. I think uh, I, I really, really loved the, the, the young man, I guess he was turning into. So I did have a closer relationship with him. Um, but Christina and Brittany were very, very, uh, very, very bestie. You know, they were, they were like two little, two little thieves, thick as thieves. <laughs> is that the phrase? They were Christina and Brittany were thick as thieves. Um, super cute running around the set together. And um, yeah, when I, when I focus on their talent, I would not be surprised if someone told me in those days, what would happen to them at all. I would absolutely get it because they were absolutely excellent. And what's super funny about that is that our director, our casting director, Matt Casella told us who had you know previously been on the show, look, we had to find kids that were just as talented as you have become. They couldn't come in the way that you, Jennifer, came in in 1989. Sure. Cause you, you know, raised they the bar. To be, they had to be next to you today, right? They had to be, you know, able to keep up with you guys at 16 to 21. Right. Because Brittany was 12. Wow. 
12 years old competing with 16 to 21 year olds on that show. It was a big age gap. That's crazy. I didn't, I didn't realize the gap. Yeah. That's quite yeah, something. I was, uh, I was 16. I was 15 to 16 when I met her and she was 12 and, and Christina was a young 13. Wow. So was, so was Justin. Jennifer, we've, we've reached the point of the show where I have to ask you, what is the worst gift you've ever been given? Oh my goodness. The worst gift I've ever been given is actually from one of my favorite people, my favorite female in the world, my mother. She had the exact opposite style that I had. If <laughs> I liked silver, she liked gold. If she liked puffy paint on her clothes, I liked studs or metal or rhinestones. Okay. And this is, you know, nineties, eighties. <laughs> but when she, I opened up this Christmas present one year and I pulled out this pink furry shirt and I kind of looked at her with that, you know, wide-eyed smile, like, thanks, Santa. <laughs> it was horrible. And she and she took two beats and she goes, look, the gift receipt's in there. You can return it at any time. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like a pink fuzzy shirt. If anybody knows me, even back then, I was all about purples and dark colors. And I mostly wear black now and I'm more edgy. And she was just a, a sweet, sweet pastel creature who just could not wrap her head around the fact that I did not want to look like that. So yeah, it's, it's the shirts that it's the shirts that go wrong. That's, that's the hardest gift that I receive. (laughs) Have you ever bought an awful gift for someone else? So I had this really odd secret Santa. uh, I had a, I had a very odd secret Santa scenario at work. So I was assigned to a, a coworker and we didn't necessarily get along. Uh, we just didn't speak the same language. And, um, I was, I'm not, look, I'm a nerd. I might be a cool nerd, but I'm a nerd. <laughs> and, uh, I gave him nerdy gifts and my, my favorite gift I saved for last. I actually found it probably at a garage sale. Uh, and it was this weird plastic toy where parts of it moved like it was a little band, kind of like imagine a Lego band playing, just swiveling on these little hinges. It's just this toy that you can pick up and carry around, but you wind it up and push a button and the whole little band plays. It moves around, and I thought it was delightful. And we're in the music business. This is a, a musical coworker. Sure. And I thought this will be super fun. It's secret Santa, right? It's, it's, I, you know, yeah. I just didn't realize that it, I had to take him, I guess, in a different serious direction. <laughs> and he, I, I delivered him his last gift. Uh, he didn't know that I was his secret Santa and he opened it and berated and made fun of that gift in front of me, not knowing I was his secret Santa for, you know, a good two minutes. And I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Like that, that's really unfortunate. Wow. I mean, it looks really cute and fun to me. That's weird. You know? And then eventually I'm sure it was made known who I was. And I honestly have no recollection of how that went down because at that point I didn't (laughs) care anyway, we weren't very close. What could I do? You know? And so I just, I just think I'm a little nerdier and more creative with certain gifts and, um, If he wanted a gift card, that just wasn't what was going to (laughs) happen. So the show came to an end in in the mid-90s. So once the show finished, did you sort of have a a clear idea about what you wanted to do next? I was very clear that I wanted to go to college. I wanted to go to a really, really awesome college and learn more about my craft. 
I didn't understand at the time, but I was so good at being a professional, yet I had no idea how to function just as a human away from show business. Uh I just didn't know what I wanted and who I wanted to be and how I felt about a lot of stuff socially because my world had been wrapped up and my social world had been wrapped up mostly in my job because I loved my job that much. So I went to NYU and I went early decision. So as a junior, when we were wrapping up the final parts of the show, I already knew where I was going. So I didn't have that. um, I would say Los Angeles was not tempting me at the time because I knew that the other kids were planning on going towards Los Angeles after we stopped the show. And they were much younger than me. They were supported by their family. They were able to go really take on Los Angeles in a way that I didn't feel led to do. I wanted to be on Broadway. I definitely wanted to be a recording artist, but I knew I needed to finish with college before I started the rest of my career because it will, it would have been the first time I did not go to school and work at the same time since I was in sixth grade. I needed a break. Absolutely. (laughs) So you then moved into music. I mean, how, how was that start of your musical career? Well, I did go through some really hard moments where when Brittany and Christina and Justin were flourishing in the trendy genre of the bubblegum pop movement, I didn't match up with that template. That wasn't something that I was able to really run up with and say, oh, yeah, I can play that game. That makes sense. Because I was older. Uh, I'm, I'm taller I, the way that I speak, you know, I just, I just had a different kind of, you know, older soul vibe Uh that was not meshing with, uh, what the record labels were trying to complete in their collection for the nineties, or I'm sorry, for the, for the pop, the bubblegum pop two thousands, the record labels were looking for something different. And, you know, I would get a lot of, wow, your voice is amazing, but you know, and it just never really lined up. So I really went through a time of, you know, my, my, my new dream being crushed because I could not follow in the footsteps of these younger Mouseketeers who have now really started living a dream of mine. And I did go through that very human time of jealousy and sadness that I couldn't find my place. I had a big identity crisis, you know, and I talk about it now because I think it's important, important for people to understand that, you know, show business is very stressful. It doesn't matter if you're really good at what you do. That doesn't mean that you're going to always find the perfect place for you that not only satisfies what you want to do as a career, but also supports you financially, you know? Absolutely. And I, I found that I found myself in plan B and C and D, which was a lot of wonderful life theater uh, across America. Um, and for decades, I worked with cover bands. I toured different countries. Um, I worked in dramatic and musical ministry. I worked for Disney again um, on the park side as an acapella singer, I was trained by uh, Deke Sharon, who was the vocal arranger for all three Pitch Perfect movies. You know, I, I feel very lucky with who I've worked with and how I've worked with them and what I've learned. But all of that, as far as fame is concerned, is under the radar. You know, I've been in this business for over 30 years, but it's not necessarily like you've seen me do anything. <laughs> so there's a big difference between having a satisfying career and having something like a fame, like a fame driven career or a celebrity career that, that was not what God intended for me at all. And I get it now. You released your debut album unbreakable in 2017. I wondered about the creative process of putting that album together. 
Yes, I had a hugely supportive executive producer who saw so much potential in what we could create with this album. It started out with just a few songs that we were trying to put together for a, a few different projects. And then she really had this vision for a full length album. And when I started writing with different writers to get the stories from my life, every song I co-wrote is autobiographical from that album. I started seeing the depth of what I had to say and imagining the people who needed to hear it. And so it really did become this project way beyond what we thought it was going to be. It really grew into a huge impactful album and it took a long time to finish and it really taxed all of us. It was a labor of love, but it was also, as any album can be, very, very difficult to put together and keep it going and, and put it out there. But, you know, once it's been out there, I mean, this was 2017, I still have fans telling me about how a song got them through the loss of someone very special or a sickness or um, just reminding me how much these lyrics make sense to them and what they're struggling with or they needed to hear some encouragement today. So really it's become an album for ministry. It's become an encouraging album. That's what it was always supposed to be. Pop inspirational as far as the genre is very purposeful because a lot of my fans don't share the exact faith that I believe in, but everything that I want for, for humankind is coming through in that album. So everybody can benefit from my words of love and encouragement and, and power and reminding people that they're not alone in their struggles in, in the dark times, you know, because I've lived through those dark times and I, I can understand now how we can learn and grow from that as long as we have faith, you know? So it's reminding people who maybe aren't as far along in that faith journey as I am, that there is hope. And that, that, that is the most important thing that I can say in this world to other people. Absolutely. I know you've also been working with some up and coming artists, uh, doing some coaching. So I wonder what the key lessons were that you learned early in your career that you've been able to pass on to the next generation. Yes. One of my biggest goals is the storytelling of a song. Most often, especially when I started in, in even just competitions when I was little, I would choose a song because of the notes. We would call it the money note. As long as it had a money note, then it would make sense for competition because it has to be the highest, loudest, longest note you can muster uh -huh. in order to show one how great you are, you know. <laughs> so most people, even today, they choose a song because how it makes them feel or the vocal quality or the notes or the vibe versus the exact message. And over time, it's just constant that a lot of singers, when they're starting out and they're covering songs, they don't look at the message specifically. And so one of my first questions when we get to the dramatics of a song is, okay, what is this song about? And I usually hear silence. And then we talk about, okay, well, this song is about Let's look at the lyrics, lyrics. Let's, let's put these lyrics together and see what comes up. So we read through the lyrics and then certain things come up. And all of a sudden this young artist starts attaching themselves to the lyrics personally. Oh, you know, that makes sense because this one time, Oh, okay. I understand. This would be like me and my grandmother or, Oh, okay. So this is a breakup. Okay. And so we're starting to knit together their personal experiences so that they can now own the message of this song. Right. And I, I tell all of my artists, look, who's your favorite artist? Okay, is it Taylor Swift? Great. We already have a Taylor Swift. So we need to find your way of, of singing this song. We need to find your message through these words, right? Um, we have a lot of kids today who are very, very 
um, opposed to bullying. They want uh, better mental health awareness, um, uh, taking care of of mental health awareness, taking care of, uh, you know, bullying, taking care of low self-esteem and feeling like you're alone and isolating yourself in this day and age. These are all hot button topics. And a lot of these songs, we can pour that message through these lyrics, you know, and and the, the, the artists just didn't think of it like that. So whether it's their original song that they co-wrote or it's someone else's song that they are now going to be the messenger, it's important that they understand what they're saying and they have to take responsibility for what's coming out of their mouth. So it becomes a therapy session in, in a way because now they, they must become passionate about the message. They must understand what they're singing and they become passionate. They start owning their music more. The other thing I love to talk about is making sure that their insides are also being taken care of because a lot of the times in show business, the outside comes first. As long as you look good for the picture, as long Uh as you present well for the award show, as long as you've lost the weight for the movie, then it's going to be fine. And the team, depending on how many people we're talking about working with this artist, the team may not have someone assigned to take care of the inside, the mental health, the self-esteem, the medical aspects of an artist. And so I make sure that we check in with how they're doing self-esteem wise, how they're doing with their physicality, how they work their machine, which is, you know, how they breathe, how they move, where they're looking. You know, I want to make sure that I build them up from the inside out because that is my hardest hurdle that I had to jump over when I was young. I had a serious problem with my self-esteem on the inside, but I faked it on the outside to the point where everyone thought I had it all together for decades. And it was really the opposite. And I don't want people to go through that if I can help them. So Jennifer, wrapping up, if you had to go right back to the beginning of your career and buy yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would it be? Ooh, I would I would buy myself a house in Nashville with a full-fledged <laughs> studio. I would start young and I would learn every aspect of production. And uh, yeah, because Nashville is the place to live now. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'd have a house right in the middle of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Everything is located through my website, jennifermcgill.com. From there, you can find my social media, but separately that would be at the Jennifer McGill that's on Instagram and Facebook. And, um, through my website, you can find some video playlists. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. It's my name as well. You can find uh, a few blogs I used to write and, uh, you can even book me for coaching or mentoring, uh, through my site. So everything is right there. If you'd like to learn more about me. Fantastic. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me on my show today. It's been great to have you here. You're so welcome. I I love the questions about the gifts. It's so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at BadGiftsPod as well as online at BadGiftsPod.com.